Welcome to episode 45 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name is Tema Frank. We're living in a time of incredible opportunities for small and mid-sized companies. When companies are really small, if things are starting to get a little out of whack when it comes to customer service, the CEO can change things if they realize it. In a small organization, it's pretty easy to turn things around, to pivot, as we say these days. In really large companies, many of them are trying to offer outstanding customer experience, but making changes in the culture and processes of a large organization is incredibly tough and takes a really long time. It's like trying to turn the Titanic. But mid-sized companies or fast-growth small companies that are becoming mid-sized have incredible opportunities but are also subject to incredible risk of things getting out of control and customer service just plummeting. Today, my guest is Robert Scher, who is the founding principal of CEO to CEO, a consulting firm that helps mid-sized companies, and the author of a book called Mighty Mid-Sized Companies, How Leaders Overcome Seven Silent Growth Killers. And you can find that on Amazon, or I'll have a link to it on the website as well in the show notes. In today's interview, we talk about why customer experience will often suffer in mid-sized or high-growth companies and what can be done about it. Chat with you briefly at the end. I'm Robert Scher and the uh, founding principal of CEO to CEO. And we are a uh, consulting firm that works with mid-sized companies, generally with CEOs in the C-suite, typically helping them build what we call leadership infrastructure. So as a, as a company grows, right, they start small and uh, things can be very informal. But as they get bigger, they need more processes, things like business planning and figuring out how many meetings to have and when and how to make sure we're keeping up with external trends and so on. And, and so we help those companies figure out how to build the right amount of leadership infrastructure given their size. So at what point do you typically find that companies realize that they need some help or need some change? Well, so, so it depends. I mean, we tend to focus on, on mid-size, which, uh, you know, you're asking sort of for a definition. Sometimes it's around $10 million in revenue, but it's, it's not just the revenue. It has to do also with uh, complexity. So companies, when they go from small to mid-size, you know they're shifting when there is um, a complexity, right? A new level of complexity that's coming in. And it requires a team of leaders, for example. That's one element. Uh, sometimes it's around headcount. Um, and so it happens as companies get to maybe 35, 40, 50, and beyond. And so it's somewhere in there where complexity comes in, they start to get a little bit bigger. And do you find that, I mean, obviously, I guess if they are working with you, they recognize that they've got a problem. But uh, perhaps just from your experiences trying to convince people that they need to change, what are the traits of a leader who realizes that there is a need for change versus one who doesn't? Well, it's interesting. I think most leaders, when they get frustrated when things aren't happening, when problems keep raining down, recognize that there's a need for change. Um, some think it's about the other people that need the change, right? Whether it's <laughs> yes. you know, the stupid customers or the teams or the horrible bank that didn't give them yet more money when they missed all their targets, and, and forget to look at themselves because that top leader is where all the change has to start. And 
And I've been a CEO for many years, am one now, and you got to look at yourself first. So I, I think, and I'd have to add that we tend to get called in by people who are introspective, who want solutions, who are not afraid of looking under every rock to figure out where the change needs to be made. So we see sort of a better set of people that say, um, I, I want change, I'm ready for change, what do we have to do? Right. So when they get to that point, where would you start in trying to assess the situation? So, you know, we're, we're starting very, very broadly here, and there can be all sorts of challenges. So the first thing is to figure out what isn't working as well. And if we look at all of the functional areas in a business, is it that there's not enough business to cover the cost? And then we'd have to look at how they're going to market or what they're trying to sell or supply. There could be flaws in either end of that. There are other times when the business has grown because sales works, because they have a really cool product, and now the problem is getting the goods out the door. And, and that, you know, that's a different sort of a challenge, and that comes closer to the customer experience where you're focused and, and, and have expertise. And so... Um, you know, we first start through a conversation and, and try to understand where it seems the problems are. The other rubric we use is, is looking at leadership infrastructure. Companies lose control of their growth when they've outgrown their systems and processes and teams. Yeah. So we've got an approach to looking at that that says, is it more the people? Is it the processes? What kind of processes? What's the area? Um Often the first place we find is that there's no clearly communicated and detailed plan of action, operating system we often call it, that informs all of the leadership teams and beyond's actions. So the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. It's completely clear to the CEO because he or she invented it, but it's not really clear to the team. And when you get bigger, Everyone on the team has to understand where the company's going and what their part of it is in order to act independently and get the company there. Well, and one of the things that I've seen in companies as well is during that process, there will be people who the role has really outgrown them and they can't let go of that. So, you know, they are used to doing things in a very informal, hands-on kind of way, and then suddenly you start to need some structure how do you work with employees to convince them that there is a need for change? So I, I will very often put the blame on the CEO rather than the employee. Okay. And, and so many employees or, or subordinate leaders are hungry for change, but the CEO just doesn't see it. Uh, or the CEO is loyal to people on their team because of the great job they've done mm -hmm. and ignore the fact that those people can't get them where they're trying to go and are really a burden for others on the team. Yeah. So, so the first thing is this notion of misplaced loyalty and, and CEOs and, and a leader at any level has to be loyal to their mission first and their people second. And that sounds a little like mean and wrong headed, but, but the truth of it is business is about performance. And if we have people who are focused on and delivering performance towards where the company decided to go, that's the, the, the entry price to be on that team. Just like if we're sending a hockey team to the Olympics, there was a great player back when he was 25, but now he's 60, but we just love him for what he's <laughs> 25. 
no one's going to say, no, you've got to keep that guy on the team. So, so that's, that's one element. The second next element is to say, have you, leader, shown all of the people that report to you and written down exactly what you expect, and are you measuring against that every single month? Um, if they do a good job of that, 70 or 80% of the people start to produce really good results because they know what they're supposed to do, and they're motivated to do it. Some percentage won't, and it may be that they can't, they don't want to, they're burnt out, there's any number of reasons. So we like to start with that because it's much easier for most leaders, generally, whom are nice, to say, hey, my friend, we laid out what we had to have happen. I tried to help you over three months, six months. You couldn't get there. Hey, we've got a problem. We need to do something differently. Maybe you need to go. It's much easier than the CEO just saying, why can't you do what I want you to do and getting mad and not being clear and the other person doesn't feel like they had a chance. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the starting point. And then the second point is a little bit of mentoring and coaching, but it really depends on how fast the business is growing. Yeah. Um, we've got one client, they're growing at, you know, 60% per year. Huh. Wow. So, you know, the CEO, first of all, has never grown a business larger than this. So is it fair to even think that the CEO would teach the finance person how to be a better, bigger finance person? Right. The CEO doesn't even know how. Yeah. And so in that case, you've got to bring in someone else. On the other hand, if you're growing at 3 or 4% per year, the marketplace is steady. All right. There's plenty of room for coaching. Get that person, maybe get them an outside coach if necessary. Uh, they can learn and read and grow. So I think you have to look at a couple of factors to decide whether you can coach people up or whether you need to bring in some new people. Right. Now, you talked about the importance of writing, getting in writing what the expectations are. And one of the things that we hear a lot from companies that are growing really quickly is, I don't have time to write this stuff down. How do you overcome that resistance? Team, it's very, very hard. And the faster they are growing and the more they're running around like a nut, the more they will say that. Yeah. Uh, so in truth, it takes some physical presence with those clients. Sometimes, just yesterday, I sat down with a client. This guy is super smart. Company's running super fast. He had no time to get some numbers pulled out of his system to put into exactly what we're talking about, a simple little plan. So instead of me sitting down with him for two hours and analyzing the numbers and talking about how he get his team engaged, I sat with him while he collected the numbers. <laughs> right? I'm an expensive guy. I have to do that, honestly. But, but in that process, we were talking about it. I was there. He was focused on it because I was there. He tried to get out of the meeting earlier in the day. <laughs> said, was ready. said, no, we're going to go there anyway. He was able to call in his controller and get some numbers. And we fit into that, some good coaching around it, but we had to just occupy the space. That's pretty basic. We, we try to talk about stories about how it only gets worse and not better. And, 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 and this kind of ties into a really important point. When you're a million-dollar business growing at 50%, that's fast. That's hard to keep up with. Yeah. But um, it's still small enough where... Uh, work in a weekend and bringing in the smart brother-in-law can help. Mm -hmm. And there's Newton's second law, which is force equals mass times acceleration, right? So the mass of a million-dollar business at a 50% acceleration has a lot of force. 
But we've got another client that was at $200 million, growing at 50%. Whoa. You take that math and that acceleration, holy Toledo. And so we try to foreshadow to these people where, um, where they could end up and how they can have even less time to do the kinds of things that they need. Right. And we try to combine that with some realism about what it takes to build operational infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So, so many small entrepreneurs at a million bucks, okay, got to get QuickBooks in. We've got to fix up our systems, mm-hmm. right? That's an eight-hour job maybe. They can't, they can't imagine that they could spend an entire year's revenue in two years on bringing in a real ERP system yep. and it take 18 months. That's just that's stupid talk to them. They don't get that. Right. They don't realize it and they moved before with two pickup trucks and it took them a weekend. Well, now it's going to take six months of planning and three months of approvals from the government to run power in and, you know, and so they, they run too late. Uh, so, so one of the biggest antidotes we see in, in companies, so, you know, as a consultant, we help, we weigh in, we try to paint the picture forward. Mm-hmm. But many of these companies don't have a real operational executive. Mm. They have a CEO that loves sales and loves the external and more often than not doesn't appreciate what it takes to get things done. They just don't, and they don't really care about it and it's kind of boring. So they just ignore it. And, and they also just don't have the experience to know what moving a 50,000 square foot facility is all about. Right. They just don't get it. And so the first thing we'll say is, look, you've got to hire a real executive who loves operations. They're the kind that wants the train to run on time, who's going to worry about those details, who will fight with you at the C-suite table to say, no. We cannot offer yet another variation on our product or service. You know what that's going to do to our ability to execute efficiently. Right. No, we cannot promise that in four months. We have no capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. So they have to be strong. They have to be experienced. And, of course, they're going to have the ability to do the real homework because operational planning, it's complicated. There's lots of little widgets and timelines and supply chain considerations and quality routines and all this stuff that most CEOs have no clue about, they know how to do that homework. They'll build a team to do it, and they'll be able to sit down eye-to-eye with anyone else in the C-suite and say, here's why you have to say no, or here's what I need to say yes. I need this much money, this much time. Right. How would a CEO who doesn't really have a clue about this stuff go about figuring out who is the right kind of person even to hire? Let's assume this CEO is running a business between 10 million and 75 million. So there's there's real things that are going on and they have some real ability. Yeah. So so there's a couple of ways. One is um do you go outside and get a little bit of consulting help of someone who has seen and knows what these executives look like. Okay. We've got an outfit out this way that, for example, they do lean manufacturing. Now we're thinking real manufacturing of real things. Mm-hmm. These guys have seen hundreds of operations executives. Right. So, you know, I'm sure they could help, right, to really sit in on interviews or explain what the job description would be. Mm-hmm. Even without that, we want someone who has been there and done that before. And I'm not saying you get the billion-dollar executive and pay 
gigantic money because they actually don't know how to do it. They don't know how to run a platoon of people to do it. Right. But they don't know how to do it. So if I'm 20 million, I'm looking for someone that's, that's held that role, you know, chief operations officer, whatever you want to call them, in a 75 or $80 million company. Yeah. Yeah, your comment about uh, the ones from the huge companies not knowing how to do it reminded me of with my first business where I was looking to get a, a salesperson. And of course, the applications that I had at first were people from these enormous companies. And I thought, this is not going to work. Like, I had a little three-person operation. There was no way they were expecting big budgets and, you know, to be able to wine and dine. <laughs> so you got, right. Yeah. And, and even as another point, even if you get a lower level manager or director from that giant organization, they grew up and executed with incredible framework and infrastructure around them. So they needed an analysis of something. They reached out to the finance and analyst in, in the in the finance department who supplied it to them. Right. Well, uh, mid-sized businesses often don't have an analyst. Yeah. You are the analyst. So, so you want to be really, really careful um, because bringing in uh, operational uh, discipline and structure has to be size-specific. Mm-hmm. So if it's a $20 million business, we're going to bring in some of that, but not nearly as much as for a $200 million business. And sometimes executives that have worked inside organizations have seen it, but they've never built it. And in midsize, we're building it. And that requires a different different kind of experience. So, so the first thing is that that person has to be brought in uh, and you have to pay good money because great operational executives require, you know, market to bring them in. Yep. And that's hard. And many entrepreneurs are, are cheap. They're, they're used to saving every nickel and they're like, wow, I could do an amazing marketing campaign with that money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got to get to the point where they're invested in that. And then the operations, that first real operational executive has to build metrics and create visibility that shows objectively why money should be pulled from the front, the front end, uh, the, the, the shields on the front side of the ship, right? The sales and marketing and be put into the engine room. Right. So in a similar vein, I guess one of the things that I've heard from CEOs of grow companies that are growing really quickly is why should we worry at all about the customer experience? Because we've got more customers than we know what to do with. Have you come across that kind of thing? Sure, sure. Gosh, I, one of our clients wasn't even having the customer service department report their metrics. Hmm. It was almost ignored, and they were growing very fast. And you know, they had wait wait times over sixty minutes. Abandonment, like at forty percent. Wow. They had times when people couldn't even call in because the phone bank was filled, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the poor people in customer service took up to eight screens in eight different systems to get answers to certain things. Whoa. That's but, nuts. No, it was. It, it was. Um, yet they were still growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. But... But it was interesting, you know, I, I, you know, when I'd sit in at some of the higher level meetings, it wasn't even talked about. Huh. So visibility is really, really powerful. And, and, and that's one of the first things that it's got to bring up is to say, okay, do we even realize what it's like? So that's one. 
Second is that the people with the, you know, that are allocating the resource, CEO, top team, have to feel some pain. So if that means they have to sit in customer service and hear angry people calling, yeah. getting up front and close is really important. Now, if the CEO just really doesn't care and won't do any of this, you know, at some point it's it's hard to help. Yeah. But, but feeling it up front is important. And then the right metrics that show the price, right? So it's... Mm-hmm. It's, it's what is this costing us? Is there a measure for churn? So to see that rising, we're losing customers out the bottom of the bucket, and it's it's coming up. Yeah. Um, today in the world of social media, it's a little bit easier. So in the olden days, you know, it was just anonymous customer pain that you could almost not see. Well, now they're on uh, Facebook and they're <laughs> on Glassdoor and uh, on Yelp and everywhere else. Yeah. So um, making sure that that we're seeing that is is really, really crucial. Let's talk a little bit about the flip side problem. And I mean, I'm I'm in um, based in Alberta, where we've for years had this oil boom thing happening, where Mm -hmm. everyone was saying, I'm too busy. I've got too many people, too many customers anyway. Now, of course, with oil prices having plummeted, many of them are starting to have the opposite problem where they're not growing anymore. A gut reaction I think a lot of organizations have when that happens is just to start cutting costs any way they can. So getting rid of staff, uh, worsening customer experience and customer service. How do you deal with those sorts of companies? Well, so so I'll say two things. One is that if you've soiled your reputation and people only come to you because they have no other choice, you will be the first one to lose your volume when they have any sort of a choice. Yep. Uh, and figuring that out once you've started to lose volume because you're the bottom of the barrel experience is too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's just no way to, to help at that point. And so, and the companies that are high quality and running very efficiently in other part of operations may be able to adjust price. Maybe they trim their margin, but they can probably keep their team busy and stop from losing money or more likely to be able to do that, which puts them in a much better area for recovery. Yeah. But but to go on with your question, when things go south, you absolutely have to cut to stay strong. There's no doubt about it. And there are cases where, yes, the, your service levels may drop if you can't uh, afford to have those people. And it's, it's a balanced approach as a CEO. You've got to say, where can I cut? What do I need and how do I preserve the core of the company so that when the times get better, we have a chance at at regrowing? Right. And certainly a big element of that is is not to piss off the last few customers that you have. Exactly. Because you've given them a bad experience. And so it may be that you have to cut marketing and sales back more or you have to cut executive salaries. Gosh, who was I talking to? Yes, it was not the public, a small public, yeah. who ran into trouble, and the CEO had to had to fire two of the C-suite, not because they were doing a bad job. They could just no longer afford that much high-level pay. Right. And so they, they took it in the chin up there, and I'm sure they the, the, the other the remaining executives were making less money. So mm-hmm. it's a risk. You've got to mitigate it. You sure as heck can't hope for it to get better. <laughs> 
uh, in particular when it's a geopolitical massive economic shift like oil price changes. Right. Heck knows when that's going to get better. Yeah, exactly. One final question I've got uh, that I'd like to explore with you a little bit is the differences that you see in B2B companies versus B2C. So those that are and you know marketing to consumers versus marketing to businesses. Do you see that they typically run into different types of problems? Or that they have different attitudes about their customers? You know, I'm, so I'm just thinking about that for a minute. I haven't gotten that question before. I think, I guess, let, let me try that. I'll give you the biggest extreme. If it's B2B as an enterprise where a company could have 30 customers who were each doing, uh, you know, a half million dollars each mm-hmm. versus someone who's selling you know, thousands of individual consumers. Mm-hmm. It, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be different. I think the, the, the high level companies who really care about the customer experience get close in different ways, but they get close. If it's big enterprise customers, there are people checking on those relationships who are getting in there, who when they see there's been a hiccup in service delivery, they're jumping in to double check. They're not waiting for the angry phone call. Right. And and likewise with consumers, you know, we have businesses nowadays where you're not on the phone, you're not talking with them, but there's a ton of metrics around behavior and time on websites and repeat business and, and amazing data systems that will give us those readouts. And so I think operationally effective companies at both levels, you know, create metrics they watch it carefully, they react quickly, and they have a culture of caring about the customer experience because it's a long-term, they're, they're looking at their survivability and their prosperity as a long-term element mm-hmm. versus a sales organization that just wants to ring the bell, collect the money, and not worry about it. And that's just a fundamental cultural difference. So I'm not sure I've seen a big difference in the way they feel about the customer experience. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I haven't? No, I I think the only other other piece that I'd really add in addition to the culture piece is that uh, understanding time horizons is really tricky. And I touched on it a little bit. As companies go through mid-size, the time horizons get long. Mm-hmm. And so that means that if you're not thinking forward enough long before you get into trouble and saying, look, based on our projections in a year and a half, we're going to run out of productive production capacity. Wow. It takes us a year and a quarter to increase production capacity. Mm -hmm. We have to start now. Um, That without that discipline and understanding that mid-sized companies react when it's already too late and you go through a painful period of of operational meltdown. And I think that's a really important takeaway. That is, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time, Robert. I really appreciate this and I enjoyed reading your stuff and will continue to enjoy reading what you write. There were several things that Robert said in there that I think are important to fast-growing companies. One is that when things are starting to spin out of control, It's usually because with growth comes an increase in complexity, and you really need to sit down and try and diagnose what's going wrong. Is it that we don't have enough people, or we've got the wrong kind of people? 
Is it time to perhaps, even though it may hurt, get rid of some of the people who were there with you right from the beginning, but just can't function in a company the size yours has become? Sometimes that sort of tough decision really has to be made. Or is it a question of process? Or, and I thought this was a very interesting point, not only does the company have a plan of action, but have they communicated it to the entire team? Does everyone understand what their role is in trying to build towards that vision? And the other point that he made that I think is a very interesting one is that understanding the time horizons is really tricky. As a company gets bigger, it takes longer to get things done. And sometimes mid-companies fail or shrink back to small ones because they haven't thought through those time horizons. They think they can continue to react on a dime. And it just doesn't work that way as they get bigger. I find it a really fascinating subject. And it's one that we need to pay more attention to. We talk so much about small and medium companies, SMEs, as though they were the same. But there's really a huge difference between a really tiny company and one that is moving its way up that ladder and into mid-sized company territory, however you define mid-sized. That's all I've got for you today. I look forward to chatting with you again next week. As always, feel free to reach out to me. I can be contacted at Tema, T-E-M as in marketing A, at frankreactions.com. You can leave a phone message at one 866 That's toll-free in North America. You can find me on Twitter at Tema Frank or on LinkedIn or Facebook. If you are one of my Jewish listeners, I wish you Lashana Tova. Have a sweet new year. And to everybody for whom fall is in many ways a time of new beginnings, I hope you all have a wonderful new year as well. Talk to you again next week. Bye.